0: Well, a very good morning to each and every one of you as you are on your drive time headed to work or getting busy to do the things that this great and amazing nation calls you to do and recommends that you do, because at the end of the day, discipline is more about dignity, loyalty is more about discipline. This is your humble immigrant correspondent, Chris Dunham, filling in again for my dear friend Todd Huff on The Todd Huff Show, the home of conservative, not bitter. I'm always excited and elated at the opportunity to be asked to come back behind the microphone and share some ideas and precepts from a journey that has taken 35 years in this amazing land. I remember after the last time I was on the show, I actually elicited a couple of emails from folks who went to my website, shameless plug, com. that's K-R-I-S-H-D-H-A-N-A-M.com, com. or from there you can access a myriad of other things we do. I have limited social media exposure in that I am on LinkedIn and on Instagram I vacated Facebook about a year ago. But krishdunham.com is the website from where you can access me. And some of you did the last time, even though it was a self-serving shameless plug. Uh, I guess my friend is uh, out and about doing the things that God calls him to do in both Indiana and around the nation. And so for wherever you're listening to, sit back, relax, the next hour today and tomorrow will be me filling in, giving you my take on this whole journey of conservatism, maybe touch on some of the toxic topics of our time. But uh, interestingly enough, recently I was at an event and I got to share an an analogy or an anecdote, so to speak, that was designed tongue-in-cheek. But again, just like those emails that you sent saying, hey, I like your style, I like to listen to you, you seem to come with an amount of information and data. And that's my bent. My bent is I love this forum of conservative not bitter for the simple reason is That conservatism is a logical choice. Logic is an intellectual exercise. So conservatism has to be an intellectual exercise. If you approach things with feelings, you will end up being liberal because at the end of the day, man's morality is not caused by man's identity and it's never preserved in self-preservation. Man's identity and his morality comes from a moral law and a moral lawgiver. If you basically subscribe to your everyday living, believing that there is something in the beyond that governs us and controls us, that the world that we inhabit is wonderfully and fearfully made and that we are made in the image of God, our logic tends to allow our intellect to then progress. So while I was on a stage in Louisville, Kentucky, I made this anecdote. I said, I'm originally from India, that makes me an Indian. And I know some of you are going to squirm about nomenclature, but I said, Columbus was looking for me, he found you by mistake. Now, whether you want to call it Indigenous People Day or Columbus Day or any of those other things, it doesn't matter, that's just a day. But a man named Christopher Columbus did discover the United States in 1492 by all historical accounts. And there may be people who disagree with that. There may be people who challenge me on that. But the truth is he was looking for me in India and he found the people here by mistake. So as a result, everything that has happened since then is the result of a mistake. Now that's just me as an immigrant talking and having some fun with it. So I jokingly said to this crowd that I am raising a petition to get signatures of people who are willing to now sue the descendants of the geography teacher of Christopher Columbus, because if that teacher was accurate in simple directions of left and right, Columbus would have found India, we indirectly would have become rich, and as a result, the rest of the world would have been flocking on our embassy doors all over the world trying to get in. Now, I said that tongue in cheek, completely satirical, And as a result of that, a few people actually found offense in that. Now, the reason they found offense in that is because they parlayed what I said to some of the ridiculous assertions we go into in this thing called blame game. So this beautiful morning, uh, as you are driving about, as you're welcoming another amazing day, I want to give you a very simple precept to use as an exercise in the days going forward. When we wake up in the morning, do you look through the aim frame or the blame frame? The aim frame is one of possibility. It gives you the hope unlimited. Hope is the foundational quality of all change, said Alfred Adler. John Maxwell said, if there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. I'm just, again, a very simple motivational and a transformational thought leader, have had great success in the marketplace, both in the United States and globally. But I do believe in something a little more uh, simple than those above two quotes by both Adler and Maxwell. And the first is this. Hope without gratitude is hopelessness and change without strategy is cluelessness. So when you look at what is around you and when we look at all of the toxic things that are invading our atmosphere right now, you'll begin to stumble on something called The lies of our times. And these lies are very, very interesting because as as far as, you know, even Dostoevsky said, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. Of course, that quote is from one of the great classical pieces of literature ever written uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky called Brothers Karamazov. And uh, Peter Kreft said of the 2025 books he he articulated as must read before anybody dies. He put some of the works of Dostoevsky like Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov amongst them as the great diatribes of this argument of good versus evil. Now most of Dostoevsky's setting took place in that time of Russia which was czarist in nature. They were flirting with the with the throes of what would eventually become socialism and then full-blown communism because this was pre-Lenin and before the Romanov czars fell. But I love that quote about lies and we need to transport it in our time if we want us to have that joy that allows us to say, you know what, happiness depends on happenings but joy is undiluted, it's unadulterated and pure. And our joy for the morning, our joy for the day, our joy and our hope for this drive time to work, our joy in how we go about our businesses, whether we work in factories or whether we work in offices, is not to lie to ourselves. Now, this is where, again, I go back to my original thought, which I began with, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to this this thread because it's a little bit heady. But I want you to ask yourself a question as you're listening to this, and that is this thread of logic and intellect. Are we believing a lie about ourselves because we have been told this lie by others so often that we do believe that the erudite and the sophisticated, the people who occupy the halls of DC are somehow smarter than the hardworking people in the Midwest who pick up their lunch every day and go to work to do an honest day's work and make an honest day's living. Now, again, I understand that this is a political show in that most of the opinions here are conservative and they are not bitter, but I want to go a little step beyond conservatism to this very idea of logic and intellect, and logic dictates that there is a basic understanding we need to have of ourselves, and that basic understanding comes from asking ourselves this question, are we believing the lies, and if so, has truth become something that is a negotiable commodity? If you look at the people in Washington who get up and look at what they said 40 years ago when they say when they were senators and later on became presidents, and you look at how they change with the time, you begin to realize that their morality is fluid because it is based on the feeling of the moment and what has invaded culture at the moment. And as a result, the easiest place to be in that general perspective is in the arena of blame. Every day when they open their window, the only way they can find a way to believe the lies they themselves believe is to blame somebody else so that they can say there is no such thing as truth because that truth was jettisoned because I am a victim. And in that victimization, here what Dostoevsky has to say. First, he said, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself Uh, And listens to his own lie, comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love, and in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures, and sinks to bestiality in his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself." How powerful is that statement that in that belief of that lie over a period of time canvas time in, day in, day out, that someone else is the reason for my problems, someone else is the reason for my woe, someone else is the reason why I'm stuck in this rut, someone else is the reason why I'm placated to this side. Now, are there legitimate victims in this world? I have never denied that aspect. I have ever, never denied that premise. You will never go back in any of my talks and any of my messages and say that I do not give credence to the fact that some people are genuine victims. But the concept of victimization is so broad, it begins with this fundamental lie. And as a result of embracing that lie, man begins to cheapen himself because in order to keep the lie a lie, humanity can only do one thing, and that is suppress truth. The conservative argument has always been logical. Some things are right, some things are wrong. Some things are yes, some things are no. Some things are black, some things are white. The liberal argument has been there can be no right and wrong because wrong manifests itself through the very thing we call right. So now you bring everything and make it critical. You equate everything to the color of your skin and the position and your prominence in society. As a result, we have to ask ourselves the question we have asked in the show before when I filled in. And that's that question from Francis Schaefer. How then shall we live? When we come back after the break, let's dissect these two uh, principles of truth and lies and aim and blame and logic and intellect and begin to put some meat around this, and maybe this is your day when you get involved in this journey we call apologetics. How then do we defend that which we believe? Back for more after the break. Well, welcome back. This is Chris Dunham. I hope you're still tracking with me. And uh, like I said, it's always a joy to be behind the microphone of Todd Huff, my dear friend of many years and guest host for him on The Todd Huff Show. The home of conservative, not bitter. In the previous segment, I introduced you to Fyodor Dostoevsky, one of the seminal figures of uh, literature and writing. Uh, lauded by some of the great people that we know through history, like Malcolm Muggeridge and others. Now, I don't mean to put an intellectual, uh, verbal outburst on you just to impress you in any sort of way. But like I said at the start of the show, I'm just a humble immigrant correspondent. I landed on these golden shores with $9 in my pocket and no more idea than a goat. Oil was trading at $9 a barrel, and I didn't have a car to drive in, and today, whatever astronomical amount it is, I drive an SUV. So I do not come to you as kind of an economic intellect. But somewhere along the journey, I quickly realized that the reason conservative arguments are lost is A, we do not shout. And those that shout, you know, Mr. Ziegler, my mentor, often said, when will meets imagination, put your money on imagination. And imagination just seems to have a higher volume in rhetoric today. But if you go back to the days of the academy, the days of Aristotle and began to understand how logic prevailed through the centuries and how morality uh, competed with science. Morality augmented faith. Morality dealt with life. Morality dealt with living. Morality was an instrumental part of relationships and raising children. And, uh, we have used these statistics before, but the, pers- the very word morality is under attack right now because it, it, it forebodes or it kind of makes you feel bigoted that you're taking some kind of a moral high ground because your families uh, did not break up or you grew up in some kind of semblance of what we would concede, consider or perceive as normalcy. Now, don't hear again what I'm not saying. I've met people who came from families that were fractured, who did amazing things. I've met people who came out of abject poverty, who reached enormous heights. What I am talking about is anytime you come from a moral law that is posited by a moral lawgiver on any platform where there are multiple personalities and multiple professions represented the Christian minister or the moral apologist is the one who is immediately considered bigoted because he is not fluid He is basing his thoughts and his opinions on a set of rules, a commandment that he was given that he believes are not just suggestions, but can actually work and manifest into life. So when I talk about Dostoevsky and talk about some of these things to give you that conservative edge, it is not to impress you with the vocabulary or ask you to dance down the history of anthropology, but to go back into the very basic logic of right and wrong. Is there a good and evil in this world that we are confronting? But we have packaged it in the form of politics, we have packaged it in the form of economics, we have packaged it in the form of solutions. And as a result, any time you pick a side, you're considered bigoted toward the other side and this nation dances merrily along with 50% of the populace believing one thing and 50% of the populace believing another thing. But wasn't it Daniel Webster who said, if we and our posterity reject religious instruction and authority, violate the principles of eternal ethics, trifle on moral injunction and recklessly destroy the political constitution that upholds us, no man can say how sudden the catastrophe that will overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Now, I say that quote from rote and I say it from memory because I believe all four moods have come to pass. If we do not, I mean, you know, this rejection of political and religious. If we try to separate everything, saying that, you know, separation of church and state was never separation of church from state. Our currency still says in under God, in God we trust All of our big educational institutions and uh, institutions of justice and big halls of government have on emblazoned on their sides words of morality. And there's a reason for this. Morality always went hand in hand with society. And today we see it jettison and going back to that Dostoevsky quote and having no respect, he ceases to love and in order to occupy. Now, let's look at that very word love. The word love is now fluid because it knows no gender, it knows no ethnicity, it knows nothing. It always was designed to be something free. But there are, according to C.S. Lewis, four great loves, right? I mean, the eros being the physical love, the phileo uh, the being the brotherly love, and the storge being the parental love or the relational love. But the agape, the unconditional love, uh, that is not something that man is capable of. The moment man makes himself capable of unconditional love, man is positing that he is the maker of his own destiny and the originator of his own existence. In short, man is saying, I am God. And when man gets to that position of saying, I am God, he now begins to give way to the passions of core pleasure all from continually lying to other men and to himself. So this is, again, going back to the conservative liberal argument. The conservatives come into the argument saying there is a God and he reigns from on high. The liberal argument is, yeah, but God is universal. God is in everyone. And as a result, since God is in everyone, God is everyone. So why not I become a God to you? And that when it becomes easier to follow someone. William Temple said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. And as a result of it, it is offering it to him in holy adoration. Adoration being the only component that humanity is completely capable of in a selfless way. Think about what I just said. Adoration is the only component. And as a result, now we are going through entire blocks of people who want to adore other people. Uh, And this is just very frightening because our heroes are now people who read scripts for a living. They get on a Twitter tirade with someone else and we call it a Twitter war. A war is a war where you begin to define territory. An intellectual war is when you begin to define the sanity. But a bunch of people with the collective intelligence of a gnat are standing up there as moral high ground and this great authority that is vociferous in nature and they're yelling from the treetop saying you need to listen and this is again the next arena of where conservatism has to begin to assert itself when you go on think about who are our influencers i got this from my pastor this past week our influencers are all on instagram in fact that's what they are called there are jokes that they themselves write about their ability to influence. As after you get to 150, 200, 300, whatever that magic number is, thousand followers, you are considered by the algorithms of social media and influence. So your ability to orchestrate a TikTok reel of some kind for about 10 seconds and talk about something inane and mundane or imitate a dance that someone else has already sung to a tune that someone else already made famous that other people will now watch in sound bites is what we call influence. Newton, where art thou now? You know, as someone said one time, Milton, where art thou? England is in need of your poetry. England is in need of your words. Where have our heroes gone? Again, I'm coming to you as a humble immigrant correspondent, and I hope I'm motivating the heck out of you to begin to imagine that intellect is a byproduct of logic. Logic is one of the fundamental things that begins to govern humanity. There is a law of non-contradiction. Two things cannot be right at the same time in the same relationship. One of them has to be wrong. So when we look at this broad discourse of liberalism and conservatism, one of them has to be wrong. Both of them can. This live and let live will work. It sounds like a nice little argument, but at the end of the day, something's got to give. Now, I've traveled much of the free world and I've seen a lot of stuff around the globe. I've seen where this kind of warp thinking takes entire generations of people to believe that someone else has the answer. I've seen where someone says that if I just spend uncontrollably and increase the amount of debt that I have personally, collectively, because you all now own everything that I have because of the debt that I created, somehow you're going to collectively solve the problem. No, if we took from someone, we're going to give it back to someone. The great laws of the universe still work to whom much is expected, much is given and to whom much is given, much is expected so when we come back on the other side of the break i'm going to try to continue this uh, and hopefully you'll com- keep enjoying the message the motive and the missive again i'm sorry if i'm getting a little ahead of myself but like always i enjoy doing this and keep those messages coming in krish at krish dunham.com back after the break so here we are back after the break and uh, hopefully you guys are still enjoying it um, I went back and uh, just listened as I was recording this that I do tend to get excited and I do tend to get carried away. But I'm now 35 years into this experience we call the American dream. In fact, on uh, September 13th of this year, I finished 30 years of being naturalized as a citizen of these year United States. And I remember 30 years ago how scared I was at the Old Cabell Federal Building when I went downtown Dallas uh, with all my worldly possessions to my name and how they pronounced me a citizen of the United States and then gave me the privilege to sing the national anthem along with about 35 others who were sworn in that day. 30 years later, I was driven downtown in a luxury car by someone else, paid a good amount of money to speak for an hour to a group of people, caddy corner from the same building I was sworn in 30 years earlier. This was a luxury hotel. And uh, I was now the keynote speaker. And someone asked me a question, what do you think of the American dream? And I said, this window. If you go to the window and peer real hard, you may be able to see that court building where a young immigrant was scared out of his mind about what the future held. Here we are 30 years later. I've shared the stage with two U.S. presidents. I've sat in the box seats of a very prominent person in New York at the Yankee Stadium. I've been on radio and TV. I've produced books. I've done all the things that one dreams and aspires of coming here. But the one thing i want to dedicate this last season of my life uh, i'll turn 60 in january nothing hidden there but what i want to dedicate this last season of my life is to awaken people to the possibility of america through the logic and intellect that comes from freedom and morality if we go back and study our founding fathers and understand who they were and how they represented what they represented all of them may have believed different things doctrinally. They may have come from different things messianically. They may have come from different perspectives uh, ecclesiastically. But at the end of the day, they all believed in something. And that belief is what unified 56 men who, when they signed their name, realized that they were signing their name in treason that what they would do as a result of this uh, one stroke of the pen would probably be hanged from the gallows the result is this beautiful experiment we call these united states of america one of my favorite pastimes in new york when i'm there and time allows is to go by the united nations where they say within about a mile and a half to two or maybe a three mile radius of that building is about uh, 157 or 160 um, domiciles or consuls or some kind of sovereign land that is dedicated or offered to people who have diplomacy in this country, who represent their country. America is the only nation I know that possibly, if, if evaluated, would find at least one immigrant from every other nation in the world. There are no embassies where the lines are so full as they are in the U.S. embassies around the world. Lover or hater, everybody is trying to get here. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to take an intellectual excursion into this thing called conservatism, in this thing called morality, in this thing called evangelism. I think we have enough shouting from the rooftops and saying, this is wrong, this is totalitarian. And we've talked about it the last time I was there about whether we're in a Huxleyan world or whether we're in an Orwellian world. And then I gave you the data to say that we are probably more on Huxley's side. But I want to even go even a little further and just talk about a fight versus, of good versus evil. Not of ideology, not of geography, not of demographics, not of economics. You know you can go through history in fact i was listening someone posted a quote and this is very fascinating in fact i did this as an exercise i put a quote up one day and it got certain amount of likes which it does and it got certain amount of traction the next day i put up another quote of mine but i put a famous person's name to it and it got all kinds of traction it actually had five times the traction just measuring accurately now i'm going to tell you the quote or the person but the reality is that we live in this culture, and today I saw a quote by someone who had uh, something by uh, you know Jimi Hendrix. Now, Jimi Hendrix, of course, famous to be part of that 27 Club, I think all these great musicians who either died of natural causes or artificial causes, or people who were in this world that died at the age of 27. There's no data that links them, but some of the famous people like Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Janis Joplin, and uh, Kurt Cobain, and these are all entertainers that I can think of that are all part of that 27 Club. But as I was looking at this Jimi Hendrix quote, I went and did some of my own research. The quote basically talked about knowledge and wisdom. It talked about the fact that wisdom comes from one source, knowledge comes from the other source. And then I went and pulled up his uh, thing on Wikipedia to see how he had lived, uh, where he was born, where he made his fame, where he moved, how he died. And then I saw on Wikipedia something interesting. They said he died of accidental asphyxiation caused by his own regurgitation as a result of excessive barbiturates or something to that. They put a very clean disclaimer on the fact that here was a person who was at the height of prominence, considered one of the most gifted musicians and guitar players of his time considered an expert in his genre, considered someone who was a forbearer of things to come, considered a genius at what he did, never saw his 30th birthday. But in the roaring 60s, which was uh, rampant with drugs and free love, here was a byproduct of that. They say he was angry and belligerent some days when he had excessively inebriated himself. But the day he died, he says, his girlfriend says he went to bed and when I woke him up, he was not waking up. He was unresponsive and he was, he was really struggling for breath. I called the paramedics when they came. They said he had choked on his own bile to make it as, uh, as serene as possible without being graphic over these airwaves. But for such a person like that to talk about knowledge and wisdom, and all these years later, someone put up his name in knowledge and wisdom, and the average person looking at it would look at that quote and say, that is genius, but you also have to look at who quoted it. And that is what we are missing right now. Anytime we quote something, anytime we see something, we do not go back and peel the layers of history to ask ourselves, who were the people who influenced them? And this is a telling sign of both conservatism and liberalism. You just have to look and ask yourself, who are the primary influences? Who do they quote? Who do they re-quote? Who do they read? And you'll begin to realize why we are where we are. Conservatives love the idea of freedom and no government and less taxation and more representation and no ideological warfare and amendments. But conservatism seemed to shy away from the idea of that intellectual exercise, which is how do we defeat the very academy which is churning out this liberal mindset. Think about it. Liberalism is coming from the halls of academia. So right off the bat, they perceive themselves to be the more intellectual in the argument. More after we come back. a couple of more segments to go. This is your humble immigrant correspondent, Chris uh, Dunham, filling in for my dear friend Todd Hough on the Todd Hough radio show, the home of conservative not bitter. Today, our, uh, our excursion is primarily about logic and emotion, primarily about logic and intellect, morality. We use Dostoevsky as our, uh, as our uh, launching point. And I know anybody who hears the word Dostoevsky immediately thinks, man, I think the Todd Huff Show has gone liberal or the Todd Huff Show has gone communist because that is indeed a Russian name. But if you go and read uh, any of Dostoevsky's work like Crime and Punishment and uh, Poorest Folk and uh, The Brothers Karamazov, I think five of his books are considered amongst the top five most brilliant classics ever written. They are lengthy, they are verbose, they are character-filled and uh, you'd be well, well, well uh, informed to understand what was happening in the 1850s and the 1860s all the way to the 1890s. This is pre postmodernism and then comes postmodernism with Nietzsche and then after that you have Lenin uh, who brings in, ushers in the social revolution that dethrones the czars of Russia And then after Lenin, we have Stalin, who says a little power is good. Absolute power must be awesome. And Stalin's experiment and Lenin's introduction took Russia 75 years to overcome. But if you go back in time, these were a good people. These were a good people who lived in totalitarian times. And if you hear their stories that come from abject poverty, and complete despondence, people like Dostoevsky, who himself was branded dissident of the state, like uh, Solzhenitsyn later on, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, for which he won the Nobel Prize. But uh, Dostoevsky himself was imprisoned for four years. Uh, How cruel and how brutal was it? He was actually lined up in front of a firing squad and right before they were about to pull the pin, uh, the reprieve came saying that, oh, it was all a carefully orchestrated joke. Brutality has a way of making everything look like a joke. That's why Stalin said, you know, the best way you can gain power over a people is first inflict unimaginable pain on them and then become their only source of sustenance. That's what we see happening today. Liberalism in its natural progression, while it sounds like an emotional offering to you, saying, hey, we'll take care of you. Someone else has defamed you. Someone else has defrauded you. Let's blame Christopher Columbus. Let's blame every immigrant who came from India. Whatever it is, let's blame somebody. While that sounds good, because basically you're standing at a line looking ahead, wondering why there's nothing behind you, wondering why your very foundations have eroded. It's easy to blame everything, make it critical, blame it on race, and make it a theory of some kind, introduce people, indoctrinate people, whichever side of this argument you're on. But the bottom line is when you're standing at that line and looking ahead and someone is telling you everything that is wrong with you in this world, everything that has gone bad for you in this world is someone else's fault. It becomes like that psychedelic folk song that I'm not going to take any responsibility for myself because everything I've ever done is someone else's fault. Now, as you look, as that is your foundation, that is your baseline, something amazing is going to happen in the way we actually calibrate our days. There will come a point when you say to them, okay, I now believe that you're going to take care of me, and I believe you're going to take care of me, so I really trust you to take care of me, and in that taking care of me, you're going to give me some provision. Well, the reason you're going to give me that provision is I never had that provision to begin with, so because you're going to give me that provision, you're going to level the playing field for me. Well, once you, get, once you get wind of the fact that there are no scoring and uh, the laws are now going to be changed and the goalpost is constantly going to be moved, man in his infinite wisdom, going back to that Dostoevsky quote and having no respect, he ceases to love. He ceases to love anything because respect is rooted in dignity and dignity comes with purpose. And if you take man's purpose away from it, you rob them of their dignity. And as a result of them, you make them lose respect in themselves. And the only place man can go when they lose respect on themselves is continue down this path of debauchery by participating in artificially inflated pleasures. And as a result of that, we are constantly searching for something. Folks, One great apologist put it this way, the problem in this world is not the problem with the pain that we see around them. The problem in this world seems to be quickly escalating out of control and that is an inability to satiate the unending pleasures that are thrown down the pike. Think about it. If you don't have to go to work and the amount of money you get for not working is more than the money you would have got for working, you now have more time on your hands, more money on your hands and less things to do. As a result of that, you're going to invest Invent things to do and in that invention of things to do you're going to change the very nature of the fact that you get to do them. Uh, I quoted something the other day which was an offshoot of something else and that is the point is that the problem in society today both conservative and liberal is we actually stand ashamed that nothing shames us anymore and when you stand ashamed that nothing shames us anymore you begin to invent problems You begin to invent problems hoping that the solutions will come. Think about it. The old adage was, let us find a solution for the problems we do have. Now we are inventing problems so that we will have to look for solutions for problems that don't exist that we have chosen to invent. And that's what we will see coming down the pike in the next 20 or 25 years if we are not careful. A series of problems where you and I are going to stand on that line and saying, for all that is decent and holy and merciful, I have worked hard all of my life. I've taken care of my family. I've tried to provide for my children. We have tried to uh, try to make sure that what they watch through the eye gate is actually something that uh, comes with age and maturity. And we're not going to corrupt their innocence. To now we're inventing problems saying that, hey, you know what, let's not wait till the fourth grade or the fifth grade to begin to talk to people about procreation. Let's go back to the first grade and let's challenge creation. When you begin to do these things, folks, what you rob, what you introduce is not a great awareness of a flowering humanity that is burgeoning and budgeoning with its own self-flowering thought. What you end up with is an imbecilic populace that has run out of things to entertain themselves. And they are playing God at the very primal level. And this is not only scary, it is downright distasteful and diabolical. What we are seeing unleashed on humanity for the first time and as America goes, I do believe the rest of the world goes because if America had and the Western world had the most number of Nobel laureates in the world, they probably also are the proud owners of the greatest debauchery and deceit in the world where we say, if anything goes, everything goes. If everything goes, I really don't care if you go as long as I stay. These are some trying and troubling times. Today, I wanted to give you the idea of this concept of logic and rational and morality and how it ties into humanity. We'll come back and we'll do a quick uh, closeout for the day. But then hopefully you'll join us back tomorrow when we introduce to you to some other things. More after this. All right, now for the home stretch. Um, and then hopefully you'll join us back tomorrow when we bring you... Some new ideas. Hopefully you enjoyed this course in anthropology, this course in human history, this course that takes us down the thoughts and ideas that deal with logic and emotion and intellect. But I want to uh, leave you with a, with a lighter side of things to begin to understand. And this is an old story which I may have shared before on these airwaves, but the story is of Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Holmes nudges Watson on the side of a hill one morning and says, what do you see? Watson, ever the deductive, always analytical. He says, why, Holmes? I look up and I see billions of stars. So I surmise there are thousands and millions of galaxies. So I marvel at the creation of it all theologically. Astrologically, I think Saturn is in Leo. Meteorologically, I think it's going to be a clear day tomorrow. Orologically, I think it's about two in the morning. Why, Holmes? What do you see? And Holmes says, Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. I love that story. Many of you have probably heard it. Holmes and uh, Watson, of course, are fictional creations of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But Sherlock Holmes was, you know, that analytical genius. And I love the way he surmised that entire brilliant excursion. When you look at all the basic promises of liberalism and how many things they're going to fix and how many trillion dollars they're going to spend how they going to fix the roadways, the airways, uh, the very environment we are, the air we breathe, the soil we stand on. What they are saying is that I am going to play God in this time by reintroducing into this culture a series of measures that have taken so many thousand years to evolve. You and I can look at them and say, Well, you guys, someone stole our tent. See you tomorrow. Good luck. God bless.